0: Welcome back to the Domestic Dad Podcast, where we're cleaning up the mess. On this episode, we welcome Chad Weiland. Chad's story is centered around a different kind of addiction. And I just wanted to make note of that before we get started, because we all struggle with something, and if it manifests into an addiction, I feel that it's relevant. Not only that, but it's inspiring to overcome Chad had his first encounter with drugs at the age of 18. From casual drug abuse to full on addiction to shot caller in a drug ring to living in solitary confinement in a prison because he attempted suicide to now Christian and devoted father and husband. Hold on tight because Chad's story absolutely blew me away. We laughed, we cried. We high-fived at the end. This journey is just incredible, hearing how Chad climbed out of the pit step by step. It left me in awe of the work that he did on himself, and he humbly takes zero credit for that. Grab a mop, because this mess is real. Has life gotten off track? Are you looking for some inspiration to be a better dad? Have you thought about getting sober, but you just didn't know where to start? If so, Welcome to the Domestic Dad Podcast, your go-to destination for candid discussions on journeys into sobriety, parenting, and personal growth. I'm Nick Barnett, founder of the Domestic Dad Project. I've been a dad since I was 18 years old. I'm also a trauma survivor, an alcoholic, divorced, happily remarried, hardworking, humbled by life, domestic dad. Have you ever found yourself up late at night thinking about how you totally missed an opportunity with the kids today? Then it hits you. It wasn't just today was this entire week or month. It's time to wake up with big, ambitious goals to get sober and be more engaged with your family. It's going to take more work than just dreaming. On this podcast, you'll find interviews with people who have walked that path, including myself, coaches, mentors, and pastors who can help guide you on your journey. You're going to need resources and inspiration. You can find that here. This is the community for you to lean into so you can start living life as a domestic dad. So let's grab a mop and start cleaning up the mess. Welcome to the Domestic Dad Podcast.
1: Yeah, I'm excited to be here. It's encouraging for myself to, to hear that, and now I've got a spot to go to listen to other people. I think it's good to be continuously encouraged, but to also encourage others with where I've been and where God's taken. me.
0: Yeah, let's start with where you've been. Tell me uh, what your childhood was like for you.
1: So I grew up, I come from uh, Gilbertville, Iowa, a small town, fall, small farming community. Grew up in a Catholic community. Both of my parents worked. My mom worked in the healthcare industry. My dad worked for the phone company. So I didn't, I didn't go without anything. I have an older brother that's a year older, a sister that's five years older. But life was good for me. Uh, small town. I grew up wrestling, playing baseball. My dad coached. Most of the things we did, just they were involved. Looking back now, I I always tell people I came from a good home, which I did, meaning I didn't go without. My parents, uh, we were middle class. My parents Mm -hmm. uh, provided everything we needed and then some. Uh, But looking back now, I didn't have, when I say a good home to me today is a home that uh, raised in a Christian home. And I was raised in a Catholic community, but God was never a part of my life, never the central theme in our home. Life was good, really, overall, when I think about it. What were your parents like? So my dad, it's funny that you ask that question because I see now with my son that I'm a lot like my dad. Yeah. <laughs> the, things, the things that maybe bothered me about my dad or I thought he was, my dad was, like I said, always involved. He loved, my dad loved sports, loved the things we were doing. He was a baseball player. He didn't wrestle, but he got involved, would come to everything I did. He worked hard to provide the things we needed, but that was really as far as it went. As I got older, he told me he just did things the way that his dad did. And he thought, to just provide for us what we needed food clothing shelter he loved us i don't want to say he didn't he didn't he wasn't really involved with anything other than that he did a lot of the things that he did played uh, softball so we'd go to softball tournaments which was okay <laughs> but he was he was good he was patient uh, for the most part until it came to teaching us something yeah <laughs> so if it was school work or, or baseball or anything that he was trying to teach me and i wasn't really Receptive of it or thought I knew better. He was short, fused, but he was there. My mom was the same way. My mom, boy, I didn't, she loved us. Definitely, my mom loved us. She'd pick us up, she'd kiss us, hug us, tell us she loved us. But I can't really think of involvement as a parent the way that I understand a parent to be and the involvement with my son, how I need to guide him. I don't feel I ever had that. And by no fault of their own, they were doing what they always say, what their parents did for them but they were good parents. They loved us. We were definitely loved and and provided for as far as physical things went. As far as guidance went, I feel there's a difference. Maybe they tried, but I just wasn't. As I got older, my parents got divorced. I was 11. So things really changed for me then. I can remember feeling torn between going to live with my mom or live with my dad. Now, they were only three miles apart, but all my friends were in Gilbertville where my dad was. So I chose to go there, but I saw that I, to this day, I can remember feeling just completely torn, my heart torn out, seeing what it did to my mom to not be with her. But overall, to answer your question, my parents were good people. Yeah, Uh, They loved us and cared for us and provided very well for us.
0: What about school? How'd you do at school? What was that like for you?
1: I loved school because I got to wrestle, I had to play baseball. And when I was younger, I did well in school. I was smart when I tried, but I never gave until I was a this will give you a little uh, insight. Until I was a junior in high school, I never read a book. I could read, but (laughs) I never physically sat down and read a book when you'd have to do a book report or anything else. I never read a book until I had a teacher as a junior in high school encourage me to read. Therefore, I could participate and enjoy class a lot more. And I did. And I actually learned that I love to read. I got by in school. I ended up not graduating on time and getting my GED because I was one credit short. So that'll tell you a little bit about it. I was lazy. Wrestling and baseball were what I was interested in. And I had to do schoolwork to be able to participate in those things. So
0: I did. That would be an easy way to say it. Sounds like you had a pretty good childhood. I did. did. Uh, Yeah, Yeah, man. Yeah, take me into early adult life then. Take me into where, when you started working... So.
1: When I got out of school, obviously I didn't. I didn't graduate on time. So when most people were going to college, I knew. My dad told me, "Here, you're either gonna go to college or you're gonna get same, a job.
0: Same. You're gonna have to
1: get a job." <laughs> and I had no understanding of what it was going to be like to have a job. But I got hired at Omega Cabinets. Yeah. And I think it was making eight or nine dollars an hour, and that was like that was yeah, good. That was good money, or so I thought, if you show up every day. But so I started there, and. I didn't, I worked. I don't know where it came from. I didn't, because my dad didn't push us to work when we were kids. My mom didn't push us to like work. I did things around the house, but I just had a sense of responsibility from the, the first job that I had to do a good job to learn it. And I liked what I was doing. I liked the woodworking, like being learning what was going on at Omega. I'd heard a lot about it growing up. So I was excited to do it. And I just remember wanting from that age, wanting to be at the top. I wanted to be the guy that was in charge. And I didn't know what Shut that would color. take. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that kind of went with wanting everything, wanting more, wanting to be the boss. But am I willing to do what it takes to get there? And I wasn't at that time. I would miss work and, and wouldn't feel bad about it because I was doing things I wanted to do. I was 18 years old and I thought somebody will take care of me. My parents will take care of me. And mm-hmm. they did. Mm-hmm. They allowed me to basically do what I was doing. I would spend my money on things I wanted. And they would take care of it.
0: Yeah. When did when did the problems all start? So,
1: so the problems started early for me when I was 18 years old. I had been at Omega for I don't know three or four months, and my brother was into drugs already, but I didn't have a close relationship with him. He moved out when he was 16, 17. Yeah. So I had that connection, but my sister was dating a guy too, and I went to a party at my brother's house. I was innocent. I had never used drugs and I very rarely drank in high school. I just didn't like it. But I went to a party at my brother's house and I remember this guy, my sister was dating said, Hey, take a hit of this. And I had no idea what it was. I'm like, yeah, I'll take a hit of it. Took a hit of it. And yeah, it was okay. But I I knew that I had been drinking and I was sober. I come to find out it was crack cocaine. Oh my gosh. Yeah. How old were you? I was 18, 18 years old. And luckily at that point I had no money, no means to be able to get it. I, I didn't know where to get it. I was a small town kid. For, right. I didn't know. I didn't even Ignorance know. Ignorance is
0: bliss at that point. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. So thankfully I had no no way or means to get it. And so a few years passed and I started using methamphetamine with my brother shortly after that. Because you don't want to use that stuff anyway. Just crackheads use that.
0: Yeah, pop culture uh, would tell you that's yep.
1: bad. Yeah, that's,
0: that's use meth instead.
1: Yes, that was that was very good. You've heard that before. Uh, <laughs> so that's what it was. So that's what I did, but that didn't last very long. I, I knew I started using meth, and and I would. I remember the first time I was up for seven days straight, and I'm like, "This is crazy. What am I doing?" So it was very short lived. Maybe a month or two. I wasn't living it with my mom and dad, and just. Seeing the environment that it created, the people that it brought around, not that I was any better than any of them, but at the time I thought I was. I'm like, sure I'm 18 years old, just got out of high school. What am I doing? So I left, I went back with my mom and ended up getting a job at Birch cabinet where I did very well. I'm like, I had a small taste of what using drugs was like. And I'm like, I don't know. Thank you. So I worked my way up at Birch. I was there for a short time. and worked my way up to a foreman and my life, I felt like completely changed. Looking back now, nothing really changed other than that I wasn't, I wasn't using drugs. I didn't have an opportunity to use drugs or the money, that ultimately a year and a half, two years later, my position at Birch, provided. So at about 20 years old, I went started going down a the road. The same guy that offered it to me the first time, I used it with again, and I don't know why. To this day, I don't I remember the first time I used it. I'm, I'm like that's okay, but it's not, I wasn't really interested in it. I wasn't interested in the meth, but I remember the day, I don't remember the date, but I remember the day that I went to his house and I had plenty of money. So I'm like, I got 300 bucks. Let's go get some crack. And he said, I was like, yeah, let's go. And I remember that day. It was the first time I did something in my life. I was, I got, I believe that time I got high for the first time. I actually felt the effect of crack. Because
0: the first time that you had used it, you were you had been drinking alcohol. Minute, you were yeah. probably bombed. And then it just brought you back to yep. level, huh? Yep. And yeah. And I so I remember
1: that $300 was gone like that. And I was so high that I wanted more. And I remember it was that time that from that day forward, I couldn't not think about it. I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I was hooked on it. And that took me, geez, that took me on a path of destruction for the next 10 years. Wow. Yeah. In and out of prison. Tell me yeah. about that. So it started it, it started with me losing my job at Birch because I had gone a couple of years with perfect attendance, uh, great worker, on time, reliable, to not showing up because I'm up all night smoking crack. And it got to the point, so I lost my job. Pretty soon unemployment ran out or the $300 I would get a week at the time for unemployment wasn't cutting it because I could spend that in a day easy on cocaine. So it turned to stealing. If it wasn't bolted down, I was taking it. It didn't matter who you were. I would pawn things, steal things, mainly from anybody, but mainly from my family. There was a a lot of damage done. I can remember breaking into my dad's house and stealing a book of checks, a new book of checks while he's gone to work and I'm gone. And all day long, I'm writing checks to a a gas station for 20 over, 25 over, 40 over, whatever they would let me do until that book of checks was gone that day and not and not caring, not even thinking about it, just thinking, I, this is what I've got to do to get by. I, I'll deal with the consequences later. Knowing and hoping that my dad wouldn't press charges against me, and he didn't, Mom. But there were several other incidents like that. Very good friends of mine, close people that loved me, that were friends for most of my life, that I did the same thing with, that ultimately, thankfully, did press charges. To, because it was the only thing that was going to stop me from what I was doing yeah, that, that was a, that's a whole nother story in itself is I could talk about for days and weeks, the number of relationships I destroyed, people that I hurt, lied to, stole from, robbed,
0: whatever you want to call it to continue to provide my need for cocaine. Yeah. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot to process, man. Yeah. Do you ever go, did, have you ever gone back and just been like reconciled any of that stuff with those people?
1: Thank God through, and we'll get to that probably in some of the later questions, but through God's grace, actually, is the only thing. God has used the things I've recently been through in the last 10 years to completely restore the majority of those relationships. Some are relationships with people in the past that I've tried to and I've wanted to and I still think about reconciling some of them aren't willing have written me off and that's okay i understand that and that's their right to do in my heart i wish that they would forgive me and there are things that i allowed to drive me for several years like in anger you think that's bad watch this you think that was bad watch what i do now and when i think about it now it's so twisted and clouded but yes thank god the relationships with my family have all been restored and probably to a deeper and more loving way than they ever have been yeah
0: so yeah, it's like scorched earth and then you can regrow something much more beautiful. Very good. Very tell well me done. about it. Tell me about a moment that you like in the midst of the, the use of crack or cocaine or whatever it was that you have the most regret. I read that was looking through sifting through some of these. And I thought, man, that's a,
1: there's so many of them to, to pinpoint one, I know. to feel it's like same. you're, am I not doing justice to this? I would have to say probably, the one that stands out for me the most while I was while I was using crack was probably just the fact that it would rob my own parents. Yeah, and not just once, not just twice, not three times. And to see what just the hurt on my dad, but it was a whole different mm-hmm. level to see the that you can tear your own mother's heart out and just and be okay with it, not really be okay with it, but and do it repeatedly <laughs> to watch it what it did to her. Because she wanted to help me and she would do anything she could to help me. that was That's probably the most regret that I have. I remember doing it time and time again. I'd take a check and write it for $300 and think, she's got the money. She doesn't care. But that wasn't the point. The point was that I would steal from my own mother when she was willing to give me anything. And did just to see the hurt that it caused repeatedly and to think that I would do it. And sometimes that I was so sick that I would giggle about, really giggle about, me. I can't believe it. I can't believe it, you know, that I can get away with this, but that would be it. If I could pinpoint one, like I said, from using cocaine, because there's several others with methamphetamine, maybe not on that scale, stealing from people, but that would be it. Um, Because I think about it a lot, just the hurt that I caused her, uh, the pain that I caused her and not for one or two years, but for, and being a parent now, it's even more, it's right there for me to think. Man, if my son did that, that would crush me to think that he could do that. But yeah, that would be it. Oh,
0: you got me emotional, man. Yeah. <laughs> Where you're like, because oh. you know, yeah. moms are important. They... Oh yeah. Oh give me a sec. Tell me, tell me about when you started to notice like that was like it was obviously when you're using crack cocaine mm-hmm. and stealing from your mom. That's not normal. Um, when did you start to know? Hey, this is it's probably like a serious addiction. It
1: was very early on, shortly after I lost my job. Within a month or two of losing my job, I had cashed in my 401k. And it, I don't remember how many thousands of dollars it was. Call it 10. Yeah. Call it 20. Um, and it there. was gone. I remember it was gone within two or three weeks. And I had all the cash in my hand. And I thought, man, this is going to be great. But then I remember each day thinking, I'm only going to spend this much money. I'm only going to spend this much money. And within two or three weeks, that 10 grand... call it that. It was roughly that was gone. And I'm like, what am I going to do now? But I knew there was a problem before that because I couldn't stop thinking about it. I couldn't wait to get off work to go do it before I lost my job. I was scheming on ways to come up with money because I was broke. So I knew it was a problem, but it consumed me. It was the first time in my life I made a choice to do something that I could not control. I had made poor choices in my life, but they were never things that were as devastating as that choice was to use and then to continue to use. And I could not stop. It didn't matter what, it didn't matter. The hurt, the pain, the, the lies, the thieving, didn't matter. I was gonna continue to do it. And at that point, it really didn't have any serious consequences. I was charged with uh, felony forgery, but I had never been in trouble before that. I think I got charged with five counts of forgery and I ended up on probation. So even at that point, I hadn't had a lot of criminal repercussions, but I knew it was a problem early
0: on yeah very early on because it consumed me kind of those indicators along the way (laughs) all right man that's uh this is a bit abnormal yeah you know did you ever get sick
1: i did there was times that i had i was physically i was there was nothing left of me i was probably in the shape that i'm in now and within a month or two people are like is he sick what's wrong with him does he have cancer this is yes is something wrong with him and i'm like no i just stopped working out But I'm looking in the mirror and I can see that I'm physically wasting away. And then my pants or your belt's doubled over. Uh Your pants are folding over. And I'm like, oh, and people knew. They're like, but nobody suspected that I was using drugs at that point. You were really good at hiding it. I thought I was. Yeah. But I don't think, I don't know how it could have been. Only because people didn't know me. They didn't. And at that point, I didn't have a history of using drugs or any, having any problems. All they knew is here's a kid that came here. Two years ago to get a job, he worked his way up to Foreman. People like him. He's he's reliable. He's a good guy. He works out. He's got his life together. To literally within a matter of months, completely at the bottom of the pile, face sinking in, all their muscle mass gone, and you're just
0: hanging on. No money for lunch, no lunch. To yeah. Wow. So. Yeah. I with alcohol for me, it was like on the other end of the spectrum. I was like, I would get bloated and yeah. I would look in the mirror and I'd be like, who is this guy? Who do you ever, did you ever have those moments looking in the mirror? Like what happened? Yes, there was. This is not the, the person who I thought I looked like. No. It's changed dramatically in the last six months. Something is. Oh yeah. Something's off here. There was something about the sickness or psychologically that I
1: could look in the mirror and I'm like, you don't look that bad, <laughs> but I'm looking and I'm like, you could see some muscle features before, and now it's, I'm built like a stovepipe, and I'm like, you yeah, know, that bad, do I? And in your head, but you can tell yourself that
0: lie that
1: I don't don't really notice, do they?
0: Um, Yeah, I'd stop looking in the mirror and then I'd go take a shot. Fine, (laughs) I'm fine. It's fine. Yeah,
1: it's really quickly on that. My wife will bring up pictures recently, like now, she'll be on her phone and say, Oh, look at this picture. And and I can't look at them because at that time, this is when I was using math. I thought, man, I look good. When she shows me those pictures now, I, I don't even want to see them. And, I, and it makes me sad to know that a lot of the pictures I have with my son when he was younger, before I went to prison, I look, it's obvious that I was abusing something. Right. My skin pasty, cheeks sunk in, and I thought I looked good. I really did.
0: Yeah, I thought nobody knows.
1: How yeah. did everybody not know? Dude,
0: addiction has a way of writing itself all over you while hiding itself to you in that moment. I have family photos where I know I was drinking beforehand. Yeah, I had there are pictures like in the picture span, like years, where like you would, I know I was drunk in that picture. I know I was nearly blackout drunk in that picture. Wow. And when they come up on your phone, like there's a feature on iPhones, where if you swipe, it's like your featured photos. And it's like maybe the ones that have been edited, or like that my wife has shared with me or whatever. And I'll look at them like yourself, exactly the same thing. I'm like, I was drunk. Gosh, I'm bloated. Gosh, I like this this isn't right. But I thought in those moments, like, that I was okay. Mm. I thought, Oh, that's a good picture of me in those moments. Yeah. So sa- exact same like thought process. And it's so crazy to me because I, I do think that's just addiction can lie to you. man. Absolutely. That's what one
1: thing that I've always, and it's still today, I can't wrap my head around, but I get it. And I know that it's the power of addiction. When I'm a full blown drug addict, I know that I accept yeah. it. I've got no shame in saying that today. That's part of what is freeing about it. Being able to say that, know it, knowing it and vocalizing it, but I could never understand. And I still can't, even though I'm an addict, how I could go have, I don't, I choose not to, but I could go drink one or two beers and be good and leave or not drink at all. But I don't understand when somebody can't stop drinking, but I'm an addict. That's the power of it. Yeah. I'm like, what do you mean? What's the problem? Just have a beer or two beers and go. Now I get it because I've, Drink my fair share. But the power of addiction is, let's say it's cunning, it's baffling because I'm an addict, but I look at somebody who has a drinking problem and I'm like, gosh, I don't understand that. Just as they may not understand how I
0: can not use drugs, they may just be an alcoholic and they'll look at drugs and go, why would you want to do that? Oh, dude, for me, if I had a beer, that's Pandora's box, man. If I open that door, there's no chance I get it shut ever again, like ever again. And I have done so much work and put in so much time. To getting that door closed locked dead (laughs) bolted put the shaft down in front of it like buried things up to it you know what i mean like i have closed and hidden that door from my life i also have an na beer i also have a mocktail and that's just a me thing sure um but that would be like hey man do you want to go hit this crack pipe real quick one time (laughs) for me that's how that would be because as soon as that happened for me i would there would be a two liters of pinnacle yeah, vodka it. sitting Absolutely. in my liquor cabinet upstairs. And then the next thing, you know, there would be like, there wouldn't, there would be drawers in this room full of like empty liquor bottles is what yeah. it would be for me. So yeah. that's, it's just, Oh man. Yeah. But I don't know if that, it, Oh, it's yeah. It's that led me down that road
1: a hundred times. So I thought I had the door closed, had it locked, had things staffed on top of it. And then i would like, you know what? It's been six months since I've smoked. Yeah. I bet I can just get high this weekend yeah. and it was, and I'd be back in jail or prison within a month every time. And I did Lying that to yourself. Absolutely. Ah,
0: it wasn't, I messed up this one thing. Yeah, I got
1: my life together now. Yeah. I'd be okay.
0: Yeah. That's what it was like with alcohol for me too. It was, it was, I'd get sober for a week and I'd be like, Oh man, I feel great. I can do this. I'm good. I'm golden. And then right back at it. And then one beer turned into a, a six pack, six pack turned into a cocktail a dirty martini turned into a bottle of vodka sitting in the fridge, and then it was off to the races mm-hmm. you know what i mean and then it was, i remember this one time it was like three months i had gone three months and i was like i'm sober now i can drink again i went to a bachelor party in phoenix i was sitting in the airport with a guy and he's i have a vodka soda and i was like it's time i'm gonna do it i'm gonna do it i got that vodka soda i said i ordered a double by the way first drink in in, in yeah, three why, months why wouldn't you yeah, why wouldn't I? I'm gonna if I'm gonna cut, I'm gonna cut loose, right? So I got that sucker and I was sitting there I dude. I looked at it for 30, 45 seconds too. I raised it to my lips and very slowly took that first drink. By the time that plane hit Phoenix, Sky Harbor Airport, I was near blackout drunk. And my previous employer was actually on the plane and he is sober and he knew that I w- had been working on getting sobriety. It was him and his wife, he got off the plane. I'm just, I don't remember what I said, but I could tell in my head, it went from at the beginning of the flight where I wasn't totally tanked to at the end of the flight, I had all these things in my head where, is he condescendingly thinking Mm. about me? Is he, are there things happening in his head? What I'm the victim here. You know what I mean? Like I, like it was, there was a lot of stuff that started to bubble back up and then the bender went, I, I remember flying home and I couldn't like not shake. From that stuff. That quick. Yeah. That quick. That just a weekend, man. Just a weekend. I mean, we didn't go to bed. Like it was it was on. Yeah. I don't know if you had any of those.
1: Probably yeah, I've had I've had my share of it. Yeah. Thinking, like I said, it and it didn't I never when I got into and I know we'll get there, but in my Methuse I never got there because
0: it never stopped. That was an ongoing thing for years. Yeah. I have so I wanna get into that because I think that's a whole other side of the story, isn't it? Yep. Before we go there with where you were at and like flirting with sobriety and getting sober and then coming back to it when you would come back to it. And this is what, for me anyways, that's when the mental health started to hurt me because I knew at that point that I, that there was an addiction. I knew I always knew there was an addiction. I just didn't admit it. Like I, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not a drug addict. I'm not because I'm, I'm saying that I'm not. And it's, but then once I knew that it was, and I was in this like on the hamster wheel and I couldn't get off, yeah. that's when the mental health stuff started sure. to happen. The anxiety the depression. I think in main, like the self-deprecation, did you go through any of that oh, stuff? Absolutely.
1: So again, looking back now,
0: thank God that there were people. Now I know that
1: God was putting people in my life along the way. It was whether it be through an NA program, AA program, wherever it was, there was people in my life that helped me through those times. People who were willing to invest in my life when my family and people that loved me had enough. Not that they weren't willing to help me if I was going to help myself because I would go through things. When you're coming off crack cocaine alone, the the withdrawal alone puts you into a tremendous depression. And then you've got the guilt and the shame of everything that I'd done on top of that and that I was unhealthy physically. But there were a number of things. Yeah. That suicidal thoughts continuously and just thinking, man, I'm going to tell you how sick I was. A lot of people have laughed when I've told them this, but it's the honest to God's truth when I say I would think, man, I'm just going to get as high as I can and I'm going to do whatever I'm going to do because when I'm done with this bender, I'm just going to end my life. I did that a number of times, but in my head, believing I'm either going to try to get so high that it just that I don't wake up, that I have a stroke or that something happens, or I'm just going to end it. So I'm going to go out with a bang, but then I wouldn't. I would end up passing out or doing whatever I was doing, waking up, living in that guilt, living in that shame. But I had, so I went through a number of, I would be in, I think it's three East at Allen or one of them in the psych ward. I would end up there before they would haul me back to jail or I would get, I went through a dual diagnosis program at the facility for depression, anxiety. It was a six month program for people who abuse drugs. And yes, I faced a number of those things, but I never stuck with, I never stuck with anything that they would give me long enough or stay clean long enough to really get balanced out. About the time that I would start to get healthy or think I was healthy, I felt good because physically I had recovered, mentally I had got to a place like, okay, I'm going to get my life together again. I've got some opportunities, things will work out for me. I think I'm good. I don't need that depression medicine. I don't need this. I don't need that. But sooner or later, it would fall apart again. But yes, I absolutely went through that, and for a lot of the a lot of years, that was what kept me, allowed me to stay right in that hole that I was in. I felt depressed. I felt ashamed. I felt anxiety about life and how am I going to do this? How am I going to take care of all this mess that I've created? And it would just keep me right down in that hole and it would allow me to keep using. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was the hard stuff. Talk to me about starting your journey into sobriety.
1: So originally it started, I could talk about the earlier times, but I'm going to, I'm going to go move forward to where, where, what has led me to where I'm at today. Yeah. If that's okay. Yeah, because totally that, okay with that. to me, that's the most important because for a number of years, I tried to get sober. I, again, I met some really good people who I'm still friends with today who are sober, who have been sober for 15, 20, 25 years and, and programs worked for them. I can't say that they never worked for me because I never really gave them a fair chance. But all I know is that today, My journey in sobriety started when I was indicted by the federal government. (laughs) Yeah, let's go there. Yeah. So I'll just, I'll back up a little bit because it it puts, it's going to make everything line up. So when my wife, and I'll make this quick, when, when my wife and I got uh, married and she found out she was pregnant, we were going to have a baby. She said, I want to raise our son in a Christian home. And I came from a Catholic community, which I totally despised. And I'm like now that now first of all i don't know what that means second of all i came from a catholic now because that's what my relation to it was anyway she said there's a church right over here candeo church was only like a mile from where we were living at the time over off westworth and i'm like you go ahead i'm not gonna go ultimately i went and so ultimately that's a whole story that we may get into later but that church pursued me they didn't know where i was at in my life really but they knew that I had a history of drug abuse, prison, and they welcomed me with open arms. But ultimately, through that relationship, I was—I met with Paul Sabino, a lead pastor of the church one day at Doi Joy's Pizza when it was still in Cedar yeah. Falls, and yeah. and I was saved that day. I had been people had been pouring into me, but the gospel—it wasn't. I understood what they're saying that salvation is a gift, free gift. You just have to receive it. Um, <laughs> I get it, but it's just—I don't get it. I get it, but I don't get it. I don't know why that day it was, it was a Tuesday of October of 2015, right? The Tuesday before Halloween. I don't remember what the exact date was. It'd be the 29th, but I was saved that day. And there's no doubt in my mind that I was saved. Just keep that in your mind. So fast forward eight months to May 6th, 2016, the federal government had an indictment for me and I was my home and several other homes in Iowa. I think 16 or 17 homes were raided at one time. And my journey starts there too not only redemption, but God, God using me, God shaping me. So I was indicted. I ended up going to Cedar Rapids as a federal holding for the Northern District of Iowa. So I was there. And you want to talk about shame, guilt, depression, all those things. So I didn't know at the time I went to my initial appearance that morning and I was facing 30 years to life Whoa. in federal prison for my charge alone. And then in the federal system, they take your criminal history into account when sentencing you. And I had at that point, 56 criminal charges in state, 11 felonies, I think. So that was all going to come into account. But anyway, I end up in jail, um, in federal holding and they're not going to, they're not going to release me. Very few people get released, but and I knew that's not going to get released. <laughs> you weren't one of the
0: special ones that no, were going to get out
1: of there. I wasn't that guy that got picked up on a, on a kind of a simple charge, but it turned into a felony or a felony, felony charge. And then they're like, oh, he's got a job. He's got a family. Yeah. He pays it no, that wasn't me. As much as I pleaded for that, it wasn't going to happen. I just have to note that I was living a complete lie at that time. My wife suspected that I was using drugs again because of my behaviors and which were probably very obvious. But she had but given she, you
0: so much grace that- Yep.
1: And she had no idea that I had gotten back into selling meth on a large scale that I was previously involved in. So- I'm, I don't know if you want to unpack that at all. If you don't, that's what Yeah, I do. Okay. I'm, it doesn't bother me because it all it brings the story to light, but I can circle back to that. Okay. So how I got on this journey, so I'm living a complete lie. My wife doesn't know, she, but I know that my door gets kicked in at 6 in the morning, and she's carrying my son down the steps. Two AR-15s pointed at her, and their federal government swarming my house, DEA, state police, and I'm not even there. It's her coming downstairs well, carrying my son, and they're like, got their ARs pointed at her. So I don't know any of this at the time. All I know is I'm taken to jail and I hadn't seen her or heard from her or anybody in, it was about a week and a half maybe. And I can remember the desperation and the, this, the hopelessness and helplessness that I felt. I wasn't afraid of going to prison. I'd spent most of my life in prison. I knew that I could do that, but I'm looking at this and I'm going, the best thing that I could do right now is go in that cell and hang myself. Just end my life. That would be the best thing for my son. It'd be the best thing for my family, for my wife, because I was such a not only an embarrassment, but I'm just like I here I am again. My name was all over the news as being that I was the ringleader distributing methamphetamine all across northeast Iowa and into Minnesota, uh, Wisconsin. That I was the ringleader. I was the one behind it all, which I was. But at that time, I'm looking and thinking this is what my family sees. They're the ones that are going to have to answer all this. And it was a coward move, but I thought this is what I'm going to do. It's the best thing I could do. So they brought the dinner trays at five o'clock every night. You'd have to go lock down for an hour before they'd bring them. So I thought at four o'clock when I go in there, I'm going to tear this bed sheet up. I'm going to make a noose. I'm going to tie a noose. And I had already figured out how I could get it behind. In jails, they have the any hook made to break away. So you can't do that. I was crafty enough to be able to fish my lineup through the back of that where they had it mounted to the brick so I'm like I've got my spot so I go up there at four o'clock and I start tearing my sheet and I'm thinking I had fought for several years in mixed martial arts so I knew like I could choke I knew that being choked out wasn't going to be a problem I could hold my breath long enough and let that news tighten up long enough that it would just be over and I did I thought this is the best thing that I could do. So I go up there and I tear that sheet and I get it. And I remember just, I was crying thinking, this is what I've got to do. My wife will be better off. My son will be better off. I'm going to do this because I'm, I don't want, for number one, I'm a coward and I don't want to feel this way anymore. Two, they shouldn't have to, they shouldn't have to deal with this. So I remember sitting down and just, I was taking as many deep breaths as I could so I could get until I got lightheaded to the point that I could just lean against the wall and just sit. And let it tighten on my throat as long as I could. And I knew it would be over. Well, I did. And I just remember going black and thinking, I'm good. This is going to be good. About, I remember being woken up. I remember waking up vaguely in, in the ambulance and then at, in the hospital in Cedar Rapids in ICU at, they had me in a MRI tube doing MRIs in my neck. And I say all this to know that this is the point in my life that was the worst point in my life but ultimately, from the next day, turns into my life completely changing. Because today, I can get emotional sometimes when I think about it, when I really dig and think about where I was at. But the only thing I see today is what God has done with it. From the minute I woke up there, being shackled and cuffed to a, to a hospital gurney bed, and I see you thinking, I can't even get that right. I couldn't even get that right. You know what? You were doing it wrong. Yeah. how did I don't want to say it because I don't need to, but I'm, how, the, how did I this up? Right. I can't even get this right. So anyway, that's where my journey to not only redemption, but God's grace and my recovery, actually recovery for the first time in my life started. So when I wake up there, there's a, a sheriff's deputy sitting over there and I'm crying because I'm just sick. I'm thinking, man, I just that up the one chance I had. So he looks at me and the first thing he says, so mind you, I had been saved eight months prior. But my life didn't change, but there's no doubt in my mind that at that point, I was saved. There was something in my heart that changed, and God opened my not only my heart, but my eyes to see my desperate need for Him. I didn't know how desperate at that time, but I understood the gospel message. I understood salvation without a doubt. But I was so involved in what I was doing, selling drugs and living that lifestyle that I pushed all of those things to the side. Was, that wasn't what the the important part of my life was. But at this point, so I wake up in intensive care and here's a chair steppy sitting there and I'm just, I'm sick. And he looks at me and he said, I normally don't talk to anybody in here. He said, but I can see that you're hurting. And I'm just like, you think? And he says, I want you to know something. He said, I don't know where you're going and I don't know how long you're going there for. He said, but I want you to know something. He said, God loves you. And he said, and he has a plan for your life. And he said, and I know one thing, your son needs you. He said, I don't know where your marriage is going to go, but your son needs you and he's always going to need you. He said, and I know that because my mother was a drug addict and she's not here anymore. He said, but I still love her. I still need her. I still miss her. And he said, and I believe that God will use you if you allow him to. So this is, and it's something you can't make up. So he says that and I get... I remember when we were going back to jail, I was there for a couple of days and he ended up being the one that ended up transporting me back to the jail. And I just thought of this the other day after I talked to you, I remember him saying to me when he dropped me back off at the jail, they're like the administrator and everybody's he's got to go into isolation, suicide watch where I would be for the next year and a half. But anyway, I remember this guy very clearly saying they're like, what's going on? And he looked at me and he looked at that, the other deputy before he locked the door and he said, Chad's going to be okay. And I'm thinking, you have no idea. I'm not going to, how am I going to be okay? But he believed that. So then they put me in isolation and the, the jail's overcrowded. So they put me in a cell and I'm in there and I get there and I can't have a book. I can't have anything. I'm in this Velcro suit. They take, I'm on a cement slab because they take all of your pillows, they take your mattress, they take all your blankets and it's cold in there. So they give you this turtle suit, they call it. And I go into this cell and I absolutely lose it. And I'm just screaming. And I said, God, I don't know what you want. I literally hit my knees and I'm screaming. I said, God, I don't know what you want from me, but whatever you want, I'll do it. Okay, I can't do this anymore. I can't do it. Whatever you want from me, I'll do. And I'm bawling. And I'm thinking, just give me a chance to end my life again. Let me go to the shower. Let me cut my wrist, whatever I got to do. That's what I'm thinking. But I'm crying out to God, please, whatever you want from me, I'll do. Please, just whatever you want. And I go through that day, or maybe it was later that day. I can't remember exactly. But all I know is I'm laying there and I'm sick. And they open the door. The sergeant says, I hate to do this. But the jail's really overcrowded and he's got to be, he's got to have somewhere to go to. And I look up as I'm like balled up in my turtle suit cold and I look up and she goes, the good news is we're going to give you your mattress because there's going to be two of you in here. Two of us mind you in a six by 12 cell that's meant for one person and one bunk. So somebody's going to have to sleep on the floor. But anyway, I look up and here's this guy, white hair, and he just looks at me like he's not loving this anymore (laughs) than I am. But I look. And he's carrying a Bible. And the minute he walks wow. in there and sits down, he introduces himself. And we're talking for, I don't know, five or 10 minutes. And I said, do you know anything about that? And he said, actually, I do. He said, I know quite a bit about it. He said, are you a Christian? I said, I am. I was saved. And I start talking to him. And his name was Daryl Smith. I'll never forget him. I think about him all the time, pray for him. He said, my, my father was a pastor, planted churches in a church in Ohio. And he starts going through it. And he knows, he knows this thing from front to back. That's my first encounter with somebody after an attempted suicide, after running into the, this deputy of all deputies, he's there telling me I'm going to be okay. And here comes a guy that for the next year, I end up being within a cell. They move us to another cell. But so here I am with a guy who completely understands the Bible as a believer, is strong in his faith, but knows the word from Genesis to the end. And I get to study it with him. So, but my wife too, in that meantime, there was a little time that had gone by that she was writing scripture to me because I couldn't have, I couldn't even have a Bible for two weeks. I couldn't have a Bible. They wouldn't give me a book or anything because of the opportunity. I don't know what, but anyway, that's, so that's my start to the, to my journey, not only of redemption, but of God's grace and my recovery. Because my recovery is all surrounded in God's grace and what he did and the people that he's put in my life. So it was not only Daryl, but soon after that, they moved Daryl and I to a bigger cell with no bunks in it. That's just like a there's a just like a room? It's just like a, a toilet. A room like this, about this size, actually, with a toilet. And there's another guy. So they're like, We're gonna move you two over here. But the good news is again, you get to keep your the good news of the day was that you got to keep your mattress and your covers. That was it. But we're all three. So now they say, you're going to go in here because we need that for somebody who's to be by himself. He can't be with anybody else. But you guys all, our, our classification was all that we could be with other people. So they put us in with Bobby, who Bobby's a Christian and a, a tremendous singer, knows the word, reads the word. So I'm telling you, this is something you can't make up. So then we would sing, like Daryl knew all these songs and Bobby would write down songs and Bobby had written songs. And so it was Bobby, Daryl, and I for the next year sitting in this room. We never left. We left every other day we got to go take a shower. But other than that, it was me, Daryl, and Bobby in there. Daryl, Bobby, and I in there. So any question that I had could be answered. And if Daryl couldn't answer it, I would ask my mother-in-law or my wife on the phone when I called them. It was incredible. But that's where I started to be shaped. That's where I started to Now, when I started reading, it didn't make sense. A lot of things didn't make sense to me. I would go to the gospels and that things, God started to open my eyes to, I knew my need for him, but I didn't understand the whole story. But as I started to read and put things together over the next seven years, my recovery started to become who I was because yeah. it, it wasn't about it start for me. And this says it won't be the same for everybody, but for me, it started to become not about me, but about what God was going to do through me. Yeah. It wasn't about my recovery anymore. It was about who I was in it, Christ. It was yeah. about
0: the work that you were going to do. Yes. The inspirations um, you were going to cause. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I could talk for days and I could talk for hours because there's so many things that God has done and used and that I see him using today, but that I've seen him using all along the way, once my eyes were finally open to my need for a Savior, because I don't have any doubt in my mind today that the reason I'm sober and the reason I don't even think about using, using isn't something that I talk about daily, is because God removed that desire. He took a desire that I've had from my entire life for things and status, if you call it that, and a desire to be needed and wanted and, and the man on top. Yeah. Whether it be at my job when I was young, whether it be in the cars that I wanted, the things I wanted, he removed every bit of it and gave me a desire for him. The same, a stronger desire, more than I desired to be those things I desire to be who God calls me to be today. That's what, because my focus is, hasn't been while I was in prison on staying sober. It was about becoming who God wanted me to be. And that was the reflection of his son. So, I law maybe for me it was different in that way, but I know that through NA programs, AA programs, they all say that God could and would if he were sought. And I believe that is the only way is that if God does, if God removes that desire, if God, if you're a lot, if you're living in obedience to Him and allowing Him to guide your life, it won't be so much about that you're a recovering alcoholic, but it's who Nick Barnett is, who Chad Wyland is in yeah. Christ. Now, that's always obviously the focus because that's who I was. That's who I am because I never want to forget that, that I'm a drug addict because the minute I'll think that I can just use one more time. Yep. So my entire life, I've felt a need and a desire for things. The next thing in this, my story isn't unique in this way. The next thing is going to satisfy me. The next drink is going to satisfy me. The next hit, the next thing I buy, the next place I go, the next dollar I make, is going to satisfy me. And it never did. And I thought ultimately, when I remember when I got my first pound of methamphetamine, I thought, I have arrived. This is going to do it. I'm going to be able to go everywhere, do everything, buy everything that I ever wanted. And not once did it fulfill me. Not once. And I truly believe today that God used that, allowed me to, to make the poor decisions I made to understand that no matter how much money I had, no matter how many pounds of methamphetamine I had and sold and the money that came from that. It did not matter, that there was nothing going to satisfy me. And I had to go through that to understand that, to know that he was the only thing that was going to fulfill me. And ultimately, my whole story comes to a head at that for a number of years. So I understood, but it took that and losing everything that I had accumulated through illegal gains, losing it all and and not caring, understanding that none of it meant anything anyway. I ultimately still had my wife, I still had my son, I still have a family. But it took me all of those years in prison studying the word and I knew when I got to prison, I knew that my faith was real and I knew that what God was doing in my heart was real when I said that I was going to study the Bible with anybody. In federal prison, so Christianity is no no better looked on in, in jail or prison as it is out here. It's the same thing, maybe only in a tighter, you're in a smaller area, more confined area. But it, it's always, oh yeah, you're going to pick up the Bible when you come in here. You're exactly right because I understand my desperate need for it, yeah. for, for a savior and yeah. for what he's telling me and through his word. Yeah. So I did that and I met some really good people who committed horrific crimes in several ways, murders, gang murders, child molesters. And I wasn't very well liked maybe for doing that because... Other Christians that say, well, you're not going to go to Bible study with those guys, are you? Yeah, of course I am. Why wouldn't I? Well, he's a child molester. I'm like, you said you're a Christian. Do you read the word? Do you understand that God's, his sin is no greater than mine? No, it doesn't mean I'd invite him over to my house for dinner with my kids, but I'm going to study the word with him because who am I really as a Christian? If I can't, if I can't look at him and know that God forgave him, I stole from my mother. I stole from my dad. I stole from everybody I know. Yeah, he's not. You think he's proud of what he did? No, there's something wrong. It's called a fallen world and sin. And so, anyway, I knew that what God was doing in my heart and in my mind was real when I made the choice that I'm going to do this. This is who I am. This is who I am. And this is what I stand for, whether people like it or not. And I made it through my entire prison sentence without any altercations with anybody. And I learned that people respected me. They may not like me personally because of what I'm doing, but they respected me because I walked the same way every day. And it was only by God's grace and the strength, the strength that I got through him, that I was able to do that because I knew if I compromise this, my first day in prison, who am I really? And I'm just, now I'm I'm still just living another lie in a different way, in a different place. And ultimately I'm not going to change, but if I surrender to what God calls me to do, he can change my heart. He can change who I am truly. So that's what uh, I allowed to happen and God put some tremendous people in my life throughout the years in prison that ultimately have shaped me to start to redeem me. I remember a guy said to me, and Vernal Smith was his name, he would come into, would come into prison when I was in, in, in Tennessee. And the, one of the first things he said to me is, if you knew how important it was for you to be there for your son, you wouldn't be here right now. And I'm like, what? And he said, if you knew how important it was as That's a dad to right. be there for your son, yeah. you wouldn't be here right now. He said, you can argue with me all you want, but the fact is you're here. So you don't know. Yeah. And I said, and from that day forward, I started listening to him. He just poured into us and helped us to understand our need. Who we were what we're called to do as men, what the word calls us to do as dads, as husbands, as men of Christ, as leaders, and he started, that's where I began to be shaped. But God has just continued to use people like that, the rich Nesbits yeah. that were in there, people who are willing, who have lived it and who know the ultimate change that God can make in our hearts and who how he can change us. Because again, I truly believe that is only God's grace that has allowed me to change and to start to see things the way that he wants me to see them and live the way he's called me to live, which has ultimately helped me to clean up my mess because there was nothing so special about me that God chose me other than that it would glorify him. Why did my wife forgive me? Why did my parents forgive me? I didn't do that. The only thing I did was went to prison.
0: Right.
1: And I trusted. I started reading his word, started. And I don't know why. I wasn't trying to paint a picture for anybody about who I was, about the way I was living my life and about, oh, I'm this great person now. I never said anything to anybody. I just continued to stay in the word and trust that God would see me through the time I was at and people saw that there was a change in me.
0: I don't know how, but Oh, it becomes very evident that there is one when it
1: happens. When you're not pushing it and you're right. not trying to get people to believe, which I did my whole life, trying to get people to believe that I got it together. Look at me. Trying to uh, sell them on something.
0: Yeah, I have a friend. I have a friend who told me the same thing at one point. Was like, hey hey man, something's changed about you. Something's different. And I can tell what it is. And it's you find you when you find you're no it. longer
1: Trying to push the the narrative of who uh-huh. you are and how you're living your life, it just shows.
0: Yeah. It speaks for itself. Now. It's all about service, and I think that's yeah, that's when that becomes very real.
1: But it's, so the hardest part I have with sharing a story is how can you? I told you I shared with um, uh, a group in Ames about just my testimony, but it's very hard to wrap up what God has done into uh, and, and to go this. But all I know is that if you go back, there was times in my life I was so helpless, hopeless, felt. You know, that I was willing to take my life to today, looking back going, how did I have the, how did I even get to the point that I was able to do that? Yeah.
0: What, like what, what brought you to that point where you're, because you have a great story, Chad, it is such an inspiring thing. And I just, what compelled you at that, at, at some point, what was it that kind of struck you and said, I need to talk about this?
1: I battled with it a little bit. I enjoyed, I enjoyed sharing it, but again, a lot of my past was doing things for the wrong reason. This I know wasn't. And there was, there was a guy who said to me when I got out, there's people that are going to think that you're just hiding behind this Christianity thing. And I laughed. And I said, because for the first time in my life, I'm like, that's okay. Because they obviously don't know me. They don't know what I've been through. They don't know what my life is like. They don't, And that's okay. People are going to do that. But I thought when I was willing to start really sharing it, and, and it's been recently, I've always been willing to share it, but to truly get out there and share it was when I knew that I wasn't doing it for my own satisfaction yeah. or gain, but truly to glorify God and to let people understand. Listen, I understand the, the pushback on, on, on salvation. I understand the pushback on God and that we were made for a purpose because I was one of those guys that couldn't stand it at a point in my life. Like, oh, here we go. He's going to, he's going to, you're going to, Oh, yep. He's one of those. <laughs> I was that guy in prison. I'm like, oh yeah, look at them. They're on their way back from church, got their Bibles. They're all better now. But I, it's because ignorant, I was ignorant to my true need. Yeah. So I get all of those things, but I was willing to share it when I understood that it would glorify God and that somebody yeah. somebody might be feeling absolutely hopeless and helpless because, and I've been there.
0: Maybe you could save them yeah. from the... Pain of being in the pit. Yeah. Right. Hey, just know where this could take you. Right. And pull out now. Yeah. Get those hooks out of you now. Get out of the pit now. Right. And even understand
1: that you're not, it's not going to, I still, I had to go through all of the years in prison I went through. I had to get to where I'm at today. Yeah. And I truly believe that I needed that. My life wouldn't, I don't know what my life would be like. Had I not gone to prison, I'd probably still be using drugs. I might be dead. I wouldn't be a dad. I wouldn't be a husband. I'd be doing the same things I was doing. All this. Your wife didn't leave you. No which I can't, I can't really take any credit for. Ultimately, it comes back to her decision, but even bigger than that would be God's grace, God working in her life, not only from the time as she grew up in a Christian home and standing on what she believed. And I've asked her that before, and she said basically that when we got married, I said, for better or for worse, and I guess it's just going to be for worse for a little while. But really, yeah, it was, I can't say that I had anything to do with that. I grew over that time, but for her ultimately to make that decision, had nothing to do with me. it was her commitment to her faith, first of all, and then her family she didn't she didn't want and if it wasn't for that choice, we would have been just another broken home, another son without a dad or his biological dad. I don't know what would
0: have happened, but thank God, I don't have to think about those things yeah, yeah, that's the fracture in the family is always like the most terrifying thing that people don't think about in those moments, and it sounds like your wife she thought about that stuff, yeah and what the future would hold. And she had faith in you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And at a point that not a lot of people did, and I'm sure, I don't know how much support she had for her decision. I know that her family, uh, her mom and her dad, uh, if that was the decision she made, that they were going to stand by her, which that's just, that just speaks for the kind of people that they are and that they've always been, no matter how difficult it might've been for them to sit back and watch and to think, oh boy, because that's a lot of time to invest in somebody to have. Ultimately, oftentimes people fall again, but by God's grace, I haven't. And I don't, I don't plan to. So, but yeah, she would be the one you really want to talk to, but she wouldn't get on camera or she wouldn't, (laughs) she doesn't like to talk. No.
0: And I do enough for both of us. If you could go back, what would you tell sober you on day one of sobriety? What would I tell sober me on day one of sobriety? You can't do it
1: alone. Because God knows I've tried uh, for, for several different reasons. One, because I, I just, I like to do things or think that I've got things under control, but also because of the shame that came with it. And I didn't want to tell anybody I was a drug addict or anything otherwise, than I'm good. I'm good. How you doing? I'm good today. And I would go to, I would go to meetings, and I would go to different places and I always tell people I'm good. when really I was broken. I was lost. I was miserable. But I'd put on that face like I did for most of my life and just, I'm good life's good, but it wasn't. But when I learned to reach out to other people like I do today, my problem is I'm an open book today. Maybe sometimes to the point that it makes people uncomfortable, but I've learned that it works because I can't do it alone. And and chances are the reason you're doing this podcast is because somebody needs to hear it. You don't have to do it alone. And you can't. It would be a bigger
0: thing to say. You can't do it alone. Yeah. Yeah, that and trust, right? Yeah. What advice would you give to the next guy who's thinking about getting sober today?
1: Won't it be don't give up? Just don't give up. No matter how I've been at the very bottom of the heap to the point that I've taken my life, and by God's grace, I'm still here, but just to not give up. And for me, I'd have to say that you have to believe that there that God has a purpose for your life. He's He will see you through it. doesn't mean it's going to be easy, and we talked about that, but just don't give up. If you don't give up and you keep fighting, I believe that God can work miracles in you, to, that, that He will see you through it. it will put people in your life that need to be there if you're willing to accept them, but just don't give up.
0: Yeah. That. And I think from, it's not that far away. No, no. Like when you think back on prison on to go back even further, like detox to all the hard things that you had to go through in terms of letting go of shame and turning that into guilt and asking for forgiveness, like moving through that process, it doesn't take as long as you might think. And the the process that, other people have to go through Mm -hmm. in order to forgive you for those things. Once you do that, the future is so bright. I think that's a, that's one of the things that I've, that I would tell.
1: Yeah. So I have a a friend right now that's really struggling. He's been clean, uh, sober for a year, but he's struggling more than anything with his, um, why would somebody want to forgive me? Yeah. And, And it's crippling to him. And I'm like, you can't save anybody. And even though I've walked through it, you've walked through it. Several people have walked through it. That's one thing that can hang you up and drag you right back into the pit. That why do I deserve? And ultimately today I can go to, we're all like that. He's a Christian too. And I said, you're right. You don't deserve forgiveness. But none of us did. Yeah, And God sent his son to die for us. So if your wife forgives you, maybe you don't deserve her. But if you live your life today like you do, that's what matters.
0: That's exactly it. The
1: things I did before, I can't change those. And I'm not going to let them drag me down anymore. I'm not those things. Yes, I did those things. And yes, that's I was that person that did those things. But that doesn't mean I have to be today. And it doesn't mean I have to live in those things. Because ultimately, that will drag you right back to where you were at. Yeah, It's keeping him there. So it, it's a good example of what we talked about earlier. Just because you get clean or you get sober doesn't mean that your life's going to be easy. It's going to get better and it's going to be rewarding, but it doesn't mean it's always going to be easy.
0: No, bad things are going to happen. No matter what life's going to happen, you're going to fall down. Things are going to happen and that's okay. But if you have that relationship with God, yes, you can get through there it. You go. Somebody once told me early on in my journey into sobriety, I wouldn't say that I had been sober yet, but this is something that I learned that was a seed that was planted inside of me. He asked me, he said, imagine, he told me, Nick, imagine yourself as a young boy. I'm like, okay. He goes, you're running down the sidewalk. You just got out of school. You're, you're in the clear and you fall down and you scrape your knee so bad that it's bleeding and it stings. He said, who do you cry out for? I said, my mom, like that was my go-to my mom. He goes, okay, what if she's not there? My dad said, no, not there. As a matter of fact, you're all alone. Who are you going to cry to? And it was a test as to where my faith was at. And Mm -hmm. I got there. It was God, Mm -hmm. but you got to remember to pray you've got to remember to talk to God about Absolutely. things. And I think even more importantly, because your parents are like your physical like parents, right? Mm-hmm. But your spiritual parent is God. And if you can go to him with those things, you're going to be okay. You're going sure. to have somebody to talk to about it. Mm-hmm. So talk to God, trust in the process, and it's not that far away.
1: Yeah, yeah That's that just made me think of a, a flood of different things. But because you're never alone, and the more time you spend with God – the stronger your relationship, just as it would be with any other relationship, that some of the times I was the most free in my life and had the closest relationship to God was when I was in prison. There was times that I had when we were locked down for COVID for over a year, locked in ourselves 24 hours a day, seven days a week, just you and him. And I thrived. And I watched people break mentally and I'm thriving, but it's because I have that relationship. That's who I cried out to because I was put, and God used situations that drove me there as he will out here, he'll use a situation when somebody's desperation. He's driving you towards him. All you have to do is call out to him.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He loves having you as a No son. matter
1: what. And right where you're at, yeah. in your filth, in your, in, in the pit of your despair and your destruction and alcoholism or drug abuse, whatever it is, he meets yeah. you right there, right where you're at, yeah. welcomes you. There's not too many people that do that or <laughs> places that do that, right. but God does. Yeah.
0: Speaking of uh, loving your son. What's your favorite thing to do with your son now that you're sober? Ooh.
1: These are good lessons and good questions. A lot of times I'm convicted. In in my church connection group, a lot of times we talk about, do we look at our kids as being a blessing or a burden? And a lot of times I get caught up in what I want to do in my selfishness, and I am see him as a burden. But what I love watching him when I can just relax and let him be a kid, he loves to fish. And really just watching him in his element. I wasn't there for a number of years, uh, obviously, and thank God. God, my father-in-law, played that part and and stepped in as that role and shaped my son. But so one thing he loved to do and learned to do with him is fish. And I won't let him watch this, so I'll say it, um, but he's better than me. A lot of times, I'm telling you, he blows my mind. And I love watching him because he just thrives in that environment. So we live right by a little dry run. We live pretty close to the river, walking distance, but we've got a little dry run. And last year... He come up and he said, I can't remember what it was. Oh, he said, dad, there's walleye in there. And I said, there ain't walleye in there. And he said, yes, there is. He said, there's walleye in there. And then he told me there was striper bass. And I'm like, he doesn't know what he's talking about. I said, okay, buddy, I'm sure there is. And it wasn't, wasn't four or five minutes later, I hear him screaming and he's coming running towards the house. I told you. And he's got a striped bass. And I'm like, I told my wife, he got lucky. In the next, it wasn't the next day. He told me there was another kind of fish in there. And I, I can't remember what it was. I'm like, no, there's not, buddy. Those, I said, that's a predator fish. First of all, Would would eat these other ones. And he's, dad, I saw him in there. And I said, okay, sure enough. He came up <laughs> next day. He said, I told you they're in there. And I said, all right, buddy, I guess I won't doubt you anymore. Yeah. But just, to, I love watching him. If he can be outside, he's outside. And I love shooting a bow. He loves, right. so I just enjoy when I can settle down enough and just allow him to be a kid and not have expectations
0: of him. Like I do too often. It's it just, it's a joy just to watch him. That what you just said right there, not have any expectations of him and just watch him be a kid. Yeah, I think those are the best experiences as yeah. a father Yeah, when but you're not trying to shape them nope. anymore. You're, they are who they are. And they're in that moment of their life where they're just, Yeah, and you can look at them and you're just like, damn, I'm proud. Yeah, And, I'm proud of myself for being able to be here. Yes, especially after all the. It took a lot for me to get out of the pit, and it's own, obviously you as well to get to that point where you can be in that thrive moment.
1: The only thing I don't like is that he tries to pick up every pole. Yeah, if there's four poles and one gets a bite, he's on it, and then he's to the next one. The next one, you're like, "This is mine. Just leave it alone." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow.
0: Talk to me about what
1: your day to day looks
0: like now that you're sober today. So I work.
1: I'm a machinist. So I get up when I can stay on schedule. I like to get up before I go to work and read the word, even if it's for 15 or 20 minutes. That kind of sets the tone for my whole day. When I do that and when I can stay focused on that, life is just a little bit different because I have that connection. I pray every day when I get up. It might just be a short prayer, but I do thank God for my health and, and my freedom, first of all, but mostly not my physical freedom out of prison, but my freedom in Him to be who He called me to be. Just thank Him for my family and for what He's given me. Not any uh, material thing, but just thanking him for the life that he's given me, the people he's surrounded me with, the things that he's doing. And I say, God, let me see what you're doing. There was a song that I would sing, Lord, if you're saving souls this season, don't do it without me. And a song I think about comes to my head. I just want to be in the room. Matt Marr sings it. He says, I just want to be in the room when you move. Let me be a part of what you're doing, God. That's yeah. what I say. Let me, however that is, whether that's helping somebody, whether that's sharing my story, whether it's sharing the gospel that we're called to do. That's how I like to start my day. Do I do it all the time? No, because a lot of times I get in a hurry and just start living, but that's what my day would look like. And then I go to work. work till two o'clock and I come home uh, and I work out because I've learned that's a big part of, I've worked out for the majority of my life, but that's one thing that kind of keeps me steady. It's something I look forward to, something that helps me.
0: It's your equalizer.
1: Yeah. Some people unwind with wine and I unwind in the basement (laughs) lifting weights. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. And my wife sings a song when she makes fun of me. She'll say, "Uh, I'm in a hurry to get things done. A country song. That's what, that's her says. That's my theme song. So if I can slow down, but anyway, so to answer your question, I like to read in the morning. If I do that, my whole day is different. I said that I go to work. I've been struggling at work lately to be the example and be the person I'm called to be. A shop can be really filthy language and coarse joking and all the things that I'm called to be apart from. And I can get caught up in them sometimes. So I'm working on that uh, there. But then I come home and, and then Lincoln usually gets home from school about 3.30 when I'm done working out. And we're just we spend a lot of time together as a family. Yeah. So we may just be in the house together. But my wife and I have tried to create more of an environment that we are doing things together. Not just being together, but just being together is nice too for me
0: being a domestic dad yeah
1: there yeah, you go yeah good one that's the whole thing right yes yeah so then but one of the of the core things that I do that is very important is first of all talking to him about how his day and getting him to the point being a dad and saying, hey listen there's nothing you can tell me that's gonna make me love you any less. it doesn't matter how hard it is I want to know when wh- whatever's yes. going on at school I want to know. And you can share that with me. You can be honest with me. And but praying that that communication we have at night before we go to before he goes to bed and just being in bed with my wife and I and praying with him and not just praying repetitively, but trying to get him to understand the importance of praying and the rhythm. Yes. And acknowledging, hey, I'm really grateful for this. If these things were taken away from you, if your breath was taken away from you, which God can do at any minute. Would you be thankful that you had it back? Would it be, it's not just the food we eat. Yes, we're thankful for that. We're thankful for all of these things that God has done. And just trying to get him. So that's what one of my day looks like is every day getting him, trying to shape him and being a good example to him on who a uh, domestic dad and, and a Christian father is supposed to be. Yeah. But so it's pretty repetitive, but that works for me. I'm a, a creature of habit. Yeah. If my schedule is off, I don't like it. If it's 10 minutes from the time I get home from work, I'm pretty organized and um, stern in the way that I do things, which I'm working on. God's not done with me yet. But that's what it would look like being being a responsible employee, being a faithful servant, first of all, and reading and studying, having that time with God and growing my relationship with him. Because if I don't have that, I don't have anything. I know that. And I believe that because I've continuously strengthened it over the years and he has never failed me. So that's the most important thing. And then work so I can provide financially, help provide financially. And then being a husband and a dad, those would be the three categories. Being a faithful servant, being a faithful employee, and then
0: being a Christ-like father and husband. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. So I think we'll wrap it up there. All right. I think that's awesome. Yeah. I think we're good. Very good. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Chad. So Chad was my first guest. And I didn't know Chad before this. I only knew bits and pieces of his story that I had heard from friends or seen on the news. I just want to put a big thank you out there to Chad for sharing his incredible journey. I commend you for being a domestic dad and an elite version of yourself. Don't forget, if you have questions about getting sober, parenting, or personal growth, to email nick at domesticdadproject.com with any questions about cleaning up the messes you've made. And if your question is discussion worthy, we'll feature it on the ask Nick session of our next episode. If you're hearing this message, you've listened to the entire episode. And for that, I want to thank you with all my heart. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please leave us a review on Apple podcasts or Spotify. It really helps us out. Also, please follow us on Facebook or share this episode on your social media. You can also join our community by grabbing some merch. It means the world to me to know that this podcast is making a difference in someone's life. And if this episode inspired you to get sober or simply become a better version of yourself, you can claim your free 60-minute coaching session by visiting www.domesticdadproject.com. Let's continue supporting each other to break the stigma around dads reaching out for help to get our lives on track while navigating the obstacles of fatherhood. Until next time, keep cleaning up the mess.